Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone, welcome to a very special edition of Hugh at Home. Did you know that February 1st through to the 7th is Eating Disorders Awareness Week right here in Canada? And it is time to have the conversation to dispel the myths and the, I guess, the misconceptions too as well about eating disorders because it affects all people, no matter who you are or where you're from. We are going to have an in-depth conversation with an amazing panel from across the country and outside. So let's get to it. Let's bring in our panel. Welcome, ladies, to this. I think it's going to be an educational and a very good way to provide some information so all of us can be involved and help. So from Toronto, I am going to welcome Kim Duffy. She is the co-founder and board chair of the Waterstone Foundation for Eating Disorders. Welcome, Kim. Give a wave <laughs> and, and say Thank hi. you, Tracy. And, Thank you, Tracy. Oh, no problem. And we have Susan Osher, also from Toronto. She's a certified eating disorders specialist, supervisor, and she also has her own business, Connecting Connected Eating, Nourished from Within. Welcome, Susan. It's great to have you. Thank you, Tracy. Great to be here. And also from Toronto, we have Gabby Ash. She is an early childhood educator and she is an incredible content creator on Instagram. You can follow her at Daily Wellness with Gabby. Welcome, Gabby. Hi, so nice to be here. And we go to Mexico, to Nuevo Vallarta. <laughs> and welcome once again, my dear friend, Charlotte Armstrong, co-founder of the All In Peer Support, or All In Family Peer Support. And then we come back here to Hugh Studios in Winnipeg, and live, it is the lovely Kirsten Drybile, who is also another co-founder of the All In Family Peer Support. And Kirsten, well, we're going to have a great chat, I think. Absolutely. It's good to be here, Tracy. Yes, and it's great to have you back in studio. So uh, I want to thank all of our guests for joining. Kim, I'm going to start with you. We had the conversation, and uh, it was, for me, very eye-opening number one, about your foundation, Waterstone Foundation, but also your lived experience, too. And mm -hmm. I'm going to start with the roundtable and begin with you, Kim, on your experience and what also led to the beginnings of Waterstone. Thank you, Tracy. Um, it's great to see everybody, and thank you for doing this. Um, my experience began with my eldest daughter, uh, when she was 15 years of age, uh, back in 2008. 
and we received a call from her. My husband and I were away on a business trip and she called us to tell us that she had something that she needed to talk to us as soon as we got home. And to be honest, my first response thought was like, she's 15, what's going on? Didn't quite know. And she told us that she was struggling with an eating disorder when she came home. And that was the beginning of our journey 16 years ago. Um, and we tried to access treatment at that time. And we had an eight month wait to get her into treatment at six, well, at one of the local hospitals. And unfortunately, not a whole lot has changed with the system. So um, thus, in 2014, I wanted to raise awareness about eating disorders um, and create a opportunity for individuals to be able to access treatment, whether it be in the hospital, whether it be private. I just felt that access to treatment, because accessing treatment fast is the best and provides the best outcomes. So that was one of the reasons why I started the foundation uh, back, it'll be 10 years now. So. Wow, it's just so amazing. We're going to talk more to Kim about your journey, uh, but just to move on, Susan, you are a certified eating disorder specialist. So first of all, I guess, you know, an explanation on that. And then furthermore, talk about the work that you're doing to help. Sorry, thank you, Tracy. The certification um, is given by IADEP, the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals, which is a very rigorous certification involving certain amount of supervision hours by um, one of their supervisors, um, extensive um, extensive coursework. You have to go to their conference every few years. Like it's ongoing training and you have to really be an expert to get that certification. So I feel, I feel very proud to be part of this organization because it's a specialized field to work with people who have a mental illness, a maladaptive coping strategy, but it has in many, many cases, very dangerous physical consequences. And so that sort of balance of dealing with this being just maybe in some, a symptom in some way or a coping strategy, but not overlooking the real physical safety issue and finding that balance. So I've worked in very severe treatment centers or centers with very um, severe medical um, issues. I've worked at sick kids in a general inpatient, outpatient, um, also their symptom interruption. And then I, um, many years ago, opened Connected Eating, which offers individual group intensive outpatient programs, supervision and trainings. Um, and we have students from um, University of Toronto graduate students in different fields, really to try and create a level of expertise and of both for clinicians as well as trying to meet the need. As Kim mentioned, it's hard to access care. And in the hospital systems, while they save lives often, 
it's not individualized because programs can never really be individualized. Um, and so it's it's a tough balance and I'm not bashing the pro the hospitals at all. But at the same time, it's not one size fits all um, in terms of treatment. So, uh, you know, all hands on deck. We all have to be there and be within, you know, very competent and be able to provide services for this very, very prolific and um, profound mental illness. Oh, yes. And we're going to get more into, Susan, the clinical side of things. But first of all, I'm going to go to Gabby now. Gabby, uh, you bring, um, I guess, your own lived experience and uh, a success story, I, you know, whatever. I mean, you're an early childhood educator now. What is that like? But I guess for all of us here, if you could share your story and how the road to recovery is brought to you where you are today. Um, yeah, so my journey began back in 2015. Um, I was going through a lot of different transitions in my life, school, family, um, and I essentially felt like I had lost all control within my life. And that was kind of how my eating disordered, my eating disorder manifested. Unfortunately, it happened very, very quickly. Um, within a matter of months, I spent many, many years in and out of treatment. However, like Susan and Kim were saying, it didn't really get to the root of the problem. And so I spent about five or six years in and out of treatment, kind of just leaving where I went, uh, was started off at the beginning. Um, and so I luckily found a program where I could recover at my house um, independently without kind of having to be in those restricted um, confined spaces. And I found that that really, really, really helped me in my journey. I've now been recovered for about a year and a half. Um, I work as an early childhood educator. Recovering from my eating disorder really allowed me to get that back. And that was something I really craved and wanted. Um, so now I do that, but also my health and wellness journey as well has really kind of helped me um, be able to recover and really see health and wellness through a holistic lens um, as well. Gabby, I just want to ask a question because through what you just said, empowerment and getting back your confidence, did that help you too in, in becoming who you are today in the road of recovery? Um, absolutely. I had lost all sense of confidence and that was something I really wanted. I remember going to therapy and all I said was I want my confidence back. I just want to be happy. Um, and so over the past couple of years, that's been really something I've been working on, doing things for myself, self-care. Um, but yeah, definitely confidence has grown and that has definitely helped me in my recovery journey. Oh, well, we're definitely... I have a lot of questions for you, and I'm sure Kirsten and Charlotte and, and Susan and Kim will have questions too as well. But, okay, Charlotte, you're up next. Uh, explain, I guess, a little bit, first of all, on all-in family peer support, how that came to be, and your own lived experience. Because I want to say that mental health is really tied in to eating disorders too as well as we'll find out as we go along in the conversation. 
Charlotte? Well, thank you for having us, Tracy. You know, Kristen and I always love hanging out with you. And and this topic is is near and dear to both Kristen's and my my heart. A uh, bit about All In. All In is an organization. It's a peer support organization for families that Kristen and I co-founded. And it's all about supports for the family who are supporting someone who may be struggling with their mental health and or addiction. And, and to Kirsten and I, family is whatever family is to you. So it can be the traditional family or you know your best friend, coworker, whatever it looks like. And, and we're all about supports for the family and their mental health as they're supporting somebody. And and I just, this this topic of eating disorders, so a, bit of, a little bit about me. Um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who I call my tester child, struggled with her mental health, and uh, and that was through middle school and high school. And and the impact it had on every member of our family was incredible because we all bring our mental health story to the collective family. When my daughter was really, really struggling, um, I had the most incredible upset stomach. I had like, I couldn't eat anything and it was really impacting my mental health. And so my friends would always say to me when they, I was super skinny, life was really hard. And when I was a little bit chubby, life was a little easier. And the reason I bring that up is um, we need to work on our mental health, us as family members, so we can have a better shot at supporting the child, the partner, whoever. And uh, it wasn't until I started to get a really good stronghold on my own mental health and taking care of um, my mental wellness, I had a better chance of supporting her. And so that's what we do it all in. So it's all about you, the caregiver, the parent, the grandparent, whoever, and, and we work on, on supporting you to find those supports that you need. And uh, with that, I think I'll turn it to Kirsten because she's got the lived experience on the eating disorder side. Oh, yes. So, Kirsten, you can share your story. My story a little bit. Uh, and thanks, Charlotte. Um, so, I'm the co-founder, as Charlotte said, of Olin Family. And, um, yeah, just like Charlotte said, um, we're all about supports for the family, the, the caregiver, their supporter. And that was something that was missing in my own family story. Um, going back in time, my youngest is... Uh, my daughter who struggled with an eating disorder and that showed up in a way of restriction for her and she was diagnosed um, when she was barely 14 with anorexia. Um, we, we were not prepared for what was going to come down the pipe for our entire family during those years and um, not only were we not prepared, um, we lacked resources to support ourselves because we were her first line of, of support, especially around her anorexia. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we weren't doing so good. <laughs> you know, it really, the, the chronic stress mm -hmm. um, really took its toll on our entire family and very much on myself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my daughter's eating disorder for her, it showed up several times throughout the next 10 years, once she was 13. Um, you know, a little different maybe to some people's story, but more common than what I have seen, and I see this quite a bit, uh, her eating disorder showed up as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was struggling with her mental health and a way of, like Gabby said, of control. And um, 
she, she started restricting her eating to the point that she ended up in the eating disorder program here in Winnipeg for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, she would make, it would be ebbs and flows, gains, and then fall back. But um, she never fully got a, got a handle on it until we really discovered what was fueling the eating disorder, and that was um, a mental health diagnosis. Um, but, you know, our family has been through a lot, and certainly my daughter has been through mm -hmm. a lot. But I have to be honest, um, those years of her restriction and, uh, you know, struggling with anorexia was, was the scariest of all of her coping strategies um, for, for my husband and I. We really felt like our control and uh, our uh, inability to um, uh, impact uh, her restriction was really, it was awful. Yeah. So, um, Kim, I'm going to talk to you and Kirsten because your stories are similar. So was mm -hmm. it, I, I can't, was it a sense of almost being out of control? Like, for, oh, my, for my daughter? For your daughter? I, she would say that. She would say uh, being able to control something in her life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she would definitely say that. It, uh, she liked the, the feeling of being hungry. She liked the feeling of um, the pain of being hungry. And she liked being able to control that aspect of, of her life when she was feeling very out of control. Right, yeah. because that's one thing that she could yep. be in control of. Kim, can you add to that with your experience? Yep. Um, I, with my daughter, um, the sense, I totally agree, uh, Kristen, that being out of control. But it was interesting as uh, she was also an athlete. And the one thing that she became known as at high school was the girl with the eating disorder. And that actually, to her, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad thing, which didn't make sense to me. She, it was something that she, I have an eating disorder and that was really difficult. And to say to also, um, back to Charlotte and, and Kristen, how it, how it affects the entire family, um, the siblings, um, and, and I would even say, say to this day, they remember those years that our focus was all line and they understand exactly what we had to go through, but there's so much um, disruption in the entire family that we all, we all needed therapy, to be honest. Um, so, you know, to what Charlotte and uh, Kristen are doing, is so important so thank you for what you're doing well and that's interesting so to both of you because you both have other daughters how did that relationship change mm -hmm. um well yeah you know it was difficult on the entire family as we moved through those years I think it wasn't until we got into a little better space that I realized how difficult it was on my mm -hmm. other daughter. And mm -hmm. our house was very consumed around the health of uh, the daughter that was struggling. So it, um, you know, having, s having said that, I do like to, I do like to also share that 
what we went through as a family, in my family story, um, each one of us, including my, both my daughters, would not be the people that they are today without mm -hmm. the depths of where we've been. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there are pieces that have shaped who we are, especially my daughter as she was growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, the level of empathy, um, you know, just how you see the world, mm -hmm. how you see people. Right. Um, you know, the depth of emotion and love and gratitude. So, yes, I'm going to say absolutely our entire family was incredibly infect, uh, affected and my daughter um, definitely has some trauma. My daughter that watched what was unraveling um, that she had to work through and she continues to work through. And I think she's a pretty exceptional young woman. Um, and I think she's got some really deep pockets within her her character, and I think it's because of what we saw. Yeah. I don't know how the other ladies feel about that. I hope I'm making sense, but yeah. Uh, Kim, do you want to just? Uh, yeah, I'll jump in that? real quick and let the others yeah. talk as well. It's it's interesting to see the the family now. During that time, yeah, it was it was really hard on everybody, but now, ten well, it's been over 10 years the closeness the understanding because we all learned more we all learned about it we all went through it together and during it how difficult it was not only for you know Rin, but the family and just the closest now the understanding as uh kristen said the empathy other people non-judgmental in any way and just yeah it's we have a a very healthy and happy family now that I guess going through something bad is turned into something really good. You know, it's turned out well. Wow. So. And that's so good. Susan, I'm going to go to you. Uh, she's got a smile on her face. It was interesting uh, going to ba go back to what Kim said about her daughter being labeled, oh, the girl with the eating disorder. Labels now and types of eating disorders uh, because you can't look you can't really look at someone and say oh they have an eating disorder can you but what are some of the signs of what are some of the ways that outsiders people like ourselves can help understand first the issue but number two be empathetic or being able to have a conversation with these, with someone with an eating disorder? So it's such a big question. I'm going to zoom <laughs> <I know>. out. <laughs> oh, you've got the next half hour. <laughs> sure, I'll watch. How long do I have? Um, first of all, um, in the last diagnostic manual, it was actually changed from the category of eating disorders to feeding and eating disorders. Cute acronym of FED. Right. And why that's significant is we have recognition of newer feeding issues A feeding or eating disorder is an inability to feed yourself, which is obviously a very essential life skill to do. So what that broadened it to is one of the biggest feeding and eating disorders, which is ARFID which is um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which affects people of all ages. And it's an extreme, extreme picky eating, um, which affects primarily either nutritional or social functioning on a very profound level. 
So when we're saying how do you recognize it, I think when we look at the history of eating disorders, it was recognized as anorexia nervosa, what we think of as anorexia nervosa. And even in my clinical world, I can honestly say that I only recognize the sort of media portrayal of someone with anorexia nervosa in very few people. And I work in this field. You know, the skeletal look that everyone thinks of is not most people. And in fact, what's um, a very big topic is atypical anorexia, which is that someone loses a significant amount of weight, but is still at a normal weight. Um, without standing on a soapbox, I've got a real problem with the fact that we define so much feeding and eating disorders by numbers because it makes people feel worse. Like we need it for the very emaciated, low weight, etc. But vast majority of people struggling, meaning that it impacts their mental health besides physical, are, are not underweight. People with bulimia or binge eating disorder are usually normal to overweight by if we're using these categories. And as I just said, a lot of people with anorexia are also at a normal weight. So it's not what you might see always. We're looking for oftentimes changes, the inability to eat in a social way. If you notice that people are eating more secretively or are sort of making excuses, um, I'm just going to, uh, Gabby is nodding her head. I'm actually going to, if you don't mind, include Gabby in this conversation because, uh, you know, what do you think, Gabby? Please add because I don't have to sit here as the clinician alone. You, Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, I was definitely going to say that one. That was definitely one for me. It was um, like I used to eat every day with my group of friends and I just started to be like, oh, well, I have to go for, uh, I'm going to go for a walk or, oh, I'm just going to go have my lunch somewhere else. Um, a big one is just stopping hanging out with your friends. Um, a large part of, part of that is because you feel like you don't deserve it. You feel that you deserve to be alone with your thoughts. Um, pulling away from family is another big one. Um, and also just changes in mood as well, I would say, are another big one, personally. So thank you, Gabby. And what I just was just going to add to that, I mean, it's that disconnection, which is actually, or I would say the definition of full recovery. It's that you're connected to yourself, you're connected to other people, you're able to have deep relationships. And so that we're, you know, you're, you know, the, the piece of, as Gabby said, this sort of much more brittle, rigid mood and, and, and edginess and avoidance, like avoidance of wanting to be with people, conversations. Mm -hmm. And so that, so, some of them are very behavioral cues, avoiding maybe even wearing baggy clothes for some people, um, avoiding being seen, um, and others are medical, you know, that people are having regular check-ins check also with doctors, hopefully they're sensitive to eating disorders and knowledgeable, but you see, you see physical changes as well. You see the beginning of malnutrition, um, fatigue, sleep abnormalities, and those are some of, some of the signs and symptoms. Kim? Wow. Yeah, one thing I was 
sorry to, uh, um, to Gabby and uh, Susan on the isolation. One thing that we had no clue, well, we did know that um, our daughter was going in for extra help at lunchtime and always going in. The teacher thought, oh, we've, I've got an eager student coming in for extra help, but that was a way of avoiding going into the cafeteria and having lunch. And that then segues into the importance of the education of eating disorders that teachers, everyone's aware of what is actually, you know, going on. So. Well, that's so important. Um, well, then, Kim, while I've got you then, let's talk about what Waterstone right now, especially with some universities and colleges in Toronto are doing. Yes. Thank you. Um, so Waterstone Foundation, we launched in 2022. Um, it's a student support program. And our timing uh, for launching it then was basically just, you know, we're in the height of the pandemic and eating disorders were really skyrocketing. And for individuals going off to university and college um, can be a huge transition period and can be very difficult for some. Um, and we saw that there was, we reached out to every single college and university in Ontario to find out what was being provided on campus in their mental health and counseling centers for students that may have an eating disorder. Were they providing anything? And we had a number of schools that said, we don't have a problem here, which was, yes, you do. You just don't want to um, acknowledge it. But we ended up partnering with four schools and they have placed expert, an expert eating disorder counselor on campus that students can access free of charge. And uh, so uh, TMU, George Brown, Carleton and Durham have a full-time eating disorder therapist that then is also providing education to the residents, resident dons, um, healthcare people on, on, on campus to understand and recognize eating disorders. The ultimate goal is to keep students to early identification and to keep them out of the hospital wow. and get them back to, get them on their way to recovery. And Kim, do you have any numbers or anything about how yeah. the program is doing? Okay, share that. So right now, um, we're close to 3,000 counseling hours have been provided since we started. Each month we get updates from the counselors and therapists to how many students they are seeing. Um, we have a 100% retention of all the therapists since we've started the program, which is huge. And the average number of counseling sessions that a student will go in is seven. So, which is, and they can, they can go for more, um, but no, it's a huge success. And we would love to see this on all campuses or to have somebody because a lot of times students are, they may, you know, 
come from a long way. Home is not close by. They're, they don't know what to do. They need to talk to somebody. And it's, it's free of charge. Um, so I think it's a fabulous program. And I'd, I'd honestly, I think the schools, uh, we're into our second year with uh, TMU and George Brown where we renewed our contracts with them. But we'd like to see this, you know, as I said, further schools. Yeah, oh, amazing. Well, we got to get that here. Okay, so Charlotte and Kirsten, yeah, like a program like this, now, what can we do on the flip side for the families? And even like Kirsten, knowing mm. that your daughter could have had it service something like this back then would have made your journey a little different. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of, there was my daughter, at, um, she was 14, uh, just 14, um, we were in the adolescent eating disorder unit at uh, HSC in um, an outpatient program. Mm -hmm. And there actually were some resources, some quite a few resources for um, parents. Um, so that was in the adolescent program. Uh, the thing that, and I'm not saying that all of the resources I agreed with, I wish there was a little more empowerment um, focused on the individual and a little less control on the parent. That's my own personal mm -hmm. opinion, for sure. Not Maybe not for every story, but for my story. Um, but what happens when they turn 18 is it's a hard cut, and then you're off to the adult eating disorder uh, services. And here in Manitoba, um, that doesn't include family resources. So, I mean, that's where I think there's a, a whole lot of opportunity to have family services and services for parents, but not only around the eating disorders, but uh, around the mental health mm -hmm. completely, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know, Charlotte, I'm gonna get you to weigh in here. <laughs> you know, I, I'm all about peer support and family peer support. And when Kim, you were sharing what you're doing the universities, I'm like, can we have a group for the parents as well? Because, you know, we're, we're struggling too. And, and so that's a dream of, you know, Kirsten's and mine that there is more access for families. Um, and, and often it, it might start as an eating disorder, it might be something else, but if we can support the families to have some tools um, to support themselves through those hard days, and, and that part around um, resilience, like sometimes we get it wrong as parents. We're, we're so big on trying to fix, save, and solve our child that we forget sometimes to embrace that they've got the tools inside of them and they've got what they need we if we can support them on that journey and and it's and it's that kind of conversation that we have with parents and i know gabby when we were talking the other day too if you know just hearing a bits about your story and 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 hearing my daughter share with me now you know parts that i got wrong and and she always would say you just didn't believe me that i could figure out what i needed for myself and she, she talked about how often I was listening to respond to what she was saying. Like I wasn't listening to hear what she was saying. I was already just working on, on what I was gonna say in return. And it wasn't until I started to really hear what how she defined recovery, what she needed for herself to get through those hard times that we saw a big change in her, her mental health story. So again, you know, I'm big on the family peer support, Tracy. <laughs> of course, and family is definitely important. So Gabby, after hearing all of these stories and 
all the work that's actually being done. Uh, I want to yeah, have the conversation. Susan, I think you're probably going to jump in because I'm, I want to ask about connected eating and how that was a big paving stone for, for Gabby. But Gabby, for yourself now, parent relationship, what was it like for you? And in hindsight now, what could have been done? Or what could have, or what could have been done to make it maybe better for you? Um, yeah, so I do want to say I definitely agree with Kirsten. I was around the same age, actually. I was 15 when I went into adolescent treatment. And it was exactly as you described. The control was completely taken out of your hands, given to your parents, yet they didn't have much support either. Um, and that adolescent program really, really hindered my mom's and our relationship and a little bit of a background. I am adopted by a single mother. Um, so we've always had a really, really close relationship. I always went to her. I always told her stuff. Um, but this program really, really affected it. Um, I began no longer going to her for anything. I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like I could go to her with my problems and that was largely because the control was all out of my hands anything that i essentially told her was going to go back to the program um, and that was just kind of the nature of it um, so that really affected my relationship the adolescent program um, not just with her but also with my sister my whole family um, and so while i was going in and out of treatment it was a big adjustment to her as well because like i said she had had all of that control but it was then taken away because i was 15 so i shortly after went into the adult program the adult system so it was a whole readjustment for both of us because like kristen said the adult program is so much different um they actually don't want your parent support they say like this has to be from you um like yes of course you can go to them from for support but like we're not going to do therapy with them we're not going to educate them like this is solely on you and that puts a lot of stress on somebody who's just come from the adolescent program and so for many many years we didn't have a great relationship and so it wasn't until i discovered connected eating um and realized that like this was something that I thought would really, really help me given I'd been in treatment programs in and out, nothing was working um, and I could do this on my own. And I think that's really also what I needed for my recovery was to understand how to gain independence on how to feed myself, how to cook for myself, how to take care of myself um, because that was all taken away when I was in programs, even as an adult. Um, and so through that program, um, as I started to get better, my relationship with my mom started to improve. I started to feel more comfortable um, going to her with my issues. Um, and over the past year and a half, um, as I said, um, we've just really, really worked on our relationship. I actually, I go spend a lot of weekends with her um, and we have a really close relationship now. Um, that obviously took a lot of work, a lot of years. It wasn't a quick fix, um, but definitely something I'm happy that we have back. Um, but yeah, Susan's program definitely helped me. And it was through Waterstone that I was actually able to do that program. 
Um, so I'm always forever grateful and thankful for the program. Well, I'm going to come back to you, Gabby, because you're going to be, I think, a voice of the future for all of this. But Susan, um, I want to go to you now. Explain a little bit more about Connected Eating and why it's a passion for you. Uh, um, thank you. But I have to say, Gabby, before, <laughs> I, I think that you were ready. Like you had gone, and it was all those stepping stones to go to know what you, that you were ready to leave your eating disorder behind. I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit because, you know, and it was a battle. I'm not going to lie. It was a battle within the program as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um you know i think i think um it's tough and um i have to say like without bashing family-based therapy as sort of being the gold standard that's used in a lot of the eating disorders programs across north america we know that parents need to be involved caregivers need to be involved but as you are all saying oftentimes Caregivers aren't given enough support and education and real skills to best help their loved ones. And I mean, this is a, a real issue for me. Yes, there are periods and there are ages that people struggling with eating disorders really are 99% their eating disorder. But a lot of the time, people have two sides of themselves. The part that actually is the organism that wants to live, that wants, that's got different values, who sees what they're missing, or wants that 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 empowerment to get to that stage, and the part that's really really afraid and some somehow even protecting, thinking that it's protecting the organism. And what happens in a lot of the treatments with the young people is that, and as Gabby's saying, in some of the hospitalized hospital programs as well, you're seen as an eating disorder. So you actually don't have choices. You don't have a voice. You don't have, and that's a really destructive framework. You know, you, 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 so like, you know, I teach trauma informed care, which is about collaboration, choice, you know, trustworthiness from the from the clinician, but really empowering someone within a very safe structure. So I think that, you know, the, the parents are the people. I often say to clients, like, your parents are the ones. As much as we care about you as clinicians, your parents are the ones that actually love and adore you the most. So we have to work with parents to get their children back and to feel. Like I'm, I'm so happy to hear because, by the way, Gabby's mom's a social worker. She is. She was so committed to Gabby. She was so there on every level. She wanted to help with like trying to keep good boundaries, and you know, she's an adult. But you know, but this is a highly sophisticated woman you, we're talking about here, and it, it's a very hard thing—an eating disorder and helping your child with an eating disorder. So you know. It's complicated and there needs to be a, a, a much bigger space to individualize and help those struggling and the families or caregivers to really bring up the person in a much more comprehensive way. And last thing I want to also just say, just in terms of 
the clinician, like what's happening from that boot. It's interesting because there, in many um, latest research, they they're beginning to to challenge the concept of having adult and children programs, and rather have them across the lifespan, so that you don't have the sort of artificial. Okay, you're 18. Boom, boom, you're in the the, the adult program now, and you know some. 16-year-olds maybe are ready to be in an 18, not ready, but in an in adult program. And some 20-year-olds who are living at home, like there might be a much more of a need for parent involvement. And of course, it's a very different, it's a different view. But, you know, you can't just say you're 18, you're an adult, you're out. Because you also get developmental, um, developmental delays or hindering that happens because of the eating disorder. So it's very, um, it's a problem. Yeah. Well, Kristen was uh, clapping when you said that. But quickly, uh, Susan, can you explain Connected Eating, the program, and how it works? So um, we're a community-based private center. We do, we have, um, it's a very, um, it's, I mean, it comes, I'm a dietitian and a therapist, a psychotherapist. But it really is about helping people reconnect to their bodies in a, a stage appropriate and family-based or you know whatever their system is wherever they are in their recovery so that's a very wordy way of putting it but we we really do aim to cater to where people are at and what that means is that some people have, will have individual counseling maybe just with a therapist with a dietitian and they might have a therapist outside of connected eating we work very multidisciplinary with um with every center or, or clinician and then we try to provide higher levels of care as much as we can so you know the iop the intensive outpatient program we have for adults which is a virtual program and we also have one for teens and the parents and that one um, is primarily for parents because unfortunately teens are very competitive so when you're in this sort of sort of group program you have to really be careful that you aren't pitting people against your triggering um, and parents need empowerment so that's that what we would you know we well i can say as a clinician i would get very overwhelmed sometimes when people would come and just got a diagnosis or a crisis, their child's just is not eating or lost a lot of weight or whatever it might be, high, high symptoms. And you need an intensity. <laughs> you need at that point an intensity. There needs to be education. There needs to be skills. There's need to be meal planning. There needs to be, um, you know, peer support from other parents all coming in together. So that's a program that's, um, you know, eight weeks of psychoed. It's got the the teenagers there once a week in a group together with parents and things like, you know, how are they seeing their parents, what's working, what's not, and as a group discussion with a clinician, going back to parents, what's working, and having comparisons, you know, so that we are very goal-focused on how to get to the next step. And we have groups um, available running at different times for ARFID. We um, recently had an ARFID teen group, which was very helpful because these young people just not my words they their words they feel weird they feel weird because they just can't eat they're so picky and it's not about body image or anything like that it's a differential diagnosis if you've got body image so they're just feeling 
you know, very isolated, as we've been talking about. So that's the group. And then um, obviously training and supervision for clinicians. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. My goodness. It's a lot, a lot more than just connecting the dots and, and eating. Um, but Charlotte now, uh, let's talk a little bit. Okay, where can, where can All In Family fit in this circle? Well, I think the beauty of what All In can offer is there's a whole bunch of us parents and family members out there. And we've, all of us have our story of what worked well in our family and, and what we've tried. And, and uh, we have two support groups that run online twice a week, Wednesday nights and Thursday nights. And um, people come together and they talk about the latest book they've read or the latest um, course they've taken or, you know, what is working. And, and, um, and that alone is just such a great resource for families to tap into. Um, and, and, you know, I was, after meeting you, Susan, Kirsten, of course, we were, we were Googling you and, you know, because like, this is like another resource, you know, for our, our Ontario based families who, who are struggling. And, and so that for us is, is really important. But the big thing is really working on our own mental health or our toolbox of supports for ourselves so that when we have those hard days, um, we can pull some resources for ourselves to get through them because, oh, my gosh, you know, back then I would have told you I'm fine. I got this. And those hard days, I, I really was struggling myself with my own anxiety, um, trying to support my daughter. And and it wasn't until um, I started to take a better look. Like I said before, myself, um, I was a better support for her. Susan, I love that part that you're meeting, um, the, the people who come to, to your um, organization, uh, meeting them where they're at. And, and I, I really appreciate that's what you were doing. And, and that's the thing that so many of these programs that um, people try to get their child into or their partner, and then just to find out that it was the wrong fit. And we see this so often. And, um, and so another thing that we talk about is a plan B, so that if you know, something isn't working for your, your child, you know, what else, what other options are out there? Um, and, and those are really important. And so we, we try to weave this connection all across North America of, of the supports that are available out there. So if there isn't something in Manitoba and Ontario, where else? Um, I work, you know, I know, you know, Tracy, my day job is, is training <laughs> peer support workers and, and my, my love of family peer support workers. And, you know, there's a, a great organization, and I, I, I need to plug it a little yep. bit, um, Eating Disorder Nova Scotia, they have a peer support line, you know, that's across Canada. So if peer support is something for, that somebody wants to consider, you know, there is those those avenues and there's access out there. And, uh, and I'm really proud of all that they're doing out there. I got to spend time training up a whole bunch of family and parents to run workshops and on how to support their child who has an eating disorder. And, and those are running across Canada in different uh, provinces, not Manitoba. Still very upset <laughs> that Manitoba didn't see the benefit in that. But, you know, those are available. So there's little pockets of stuff out there. And, and if we can keep supporting that out and sharing, um, families have got a chance. They really do finding yeah. what will work for them. Well, we know that Charlotte and, and Kristen, they don't, they don't sleep. They work nonstop. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding on that one. But Kim, 
of Waterstone and you know, for me even learning more about the journey that you and your husband went through and uh, the foundation is wonderful. Uh, you have something that you're passionate about and it's the access to care now for everybody going through this. How it, what is the future for Waterstone? What are the next steps that you're going to be working towards? Um, access to care, as I say, is the most important thing because, as I said before, and we've talked, early, early intervention, early recognition, the better the outcomes. Um, I wanted to go back to something that, that Susan was saying, and I look at, and uh, Susan, thank you for what you're doing. Um, I think it's fabulous. I... I look at our, unfortunately, our hospital-based programs, they're overwhelmed with people on wait lists trying to access care and they, they, can't, they can't go anywhere. And so services like Susan, that fits, fits, a, fits a population, which is fantastic. Um, I look at what Waterstone is doing and, and my goal is to be able to see it expanded as I mentioned earlier, within all the universities and colleges, to have somebody there that somebody can access. Um, I just want, I want it to, to be a sustainable program and basically incorporated into the mental health and counseling centers. And that may mean the current mental health and counseling centers that are there, they may not be trained on eating disorders, then maybe providing training so they then know how to identify and help somebody with an eating disorder. And a lot of times, um, if a student uh, is more in a crisis situation, the schools then are working with the, with the hospital-based programs to be able to you know, get a student into the program at a hospital. Um, but no, I feel it's, it's something that should be incorporated into all of our programs um, at the schools. Uh, just like anxiety and depression, they have counselors, we need to have an eating disorder counselor. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kim. Susan, you wanted to add something. I think that, uh, first of all, you know, love what Waterstone provided, but, you know, not no buts. Um, <laughs> so hard to meet the need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that Waterstone, Kim, has, be, has been focusing on different criteria. We also need to be... Um, advocating to the government because mm -hmm. really, I mean, when you look at where the money goes, yeah. it goes to hospital-based programs, which have long wait lists, and I hate to say it, they also don't have so many beds. Like, even if they have beds, I can't tell you, they're not even full right now. So how are we spending all of the resources for really what we, it's a mental illness with medical complications. So if you are medically stable or you your eating's on track you really don't get help so and that's a real problem there should be more community funding there could, should be more available to programs like all in like there should be these should be accessible for everyone mm -hmm. because it's really it's it's much more common 
I'm not only talking about the diagnosed, but there, there's so many people struggling with it. We say, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've had a friend who said to me, doesn't everyone have an eating disorder? I'm like, no. <laughs> but like, it feels very like, so everyone's on diets or saying things or, you know, goes to binge eating disorder. Like, it's much more common than people are recognizing, even sometimes in themselves. And yet we're only treating severe medical complications for the most part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a problem. We've got no step down programs, like not really, not anything really like they have in the states. They've got partial hospitalization, IOPs, residential, blah 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 blah. Like at all levels of care, and yes, you do need to advocate for every single service that you get. I've been in rounds. I've had the privilege to be in rounds at Montanito many years ago, which is in in um, Los Angeles. And my goodness, they have to advocate to have someone there. For one more day, one more day, half of ward rounds was for the to the insurance, but at least they do have services across the board if someone has an eating disorder. We don't have mm-hmm. anything's paid for, but, but like besides a very small um, group of people struggling. Okay, so we need to get that petition signed. <laughs> oh, I I hear you, Susan. And you know what? Um, we we wanted and we didn't even touch upon the rising number of males mm. living with eating disorders. It's huge. And the BIPOC community and the 2S LGBTQ plus communities that all have their their own special like needs too as well um, on how to deal with eating disorders. And it, it's going to continue to grow. And, you know, organizations like all of these that we've heard about tonight, I mean, yes, you need to be at the front of the line and available um, more so than ever. Um, Kirsten, I guess, now listening to all this, and of course, yes, the family and, and you're all good, but when you look back at where you were with your husband and with your daughters to where you are now, what stands out most in your mind? Hmm. Um. Well, you know, just listening to the conversation and great conversation tonight with uh, all these ladies, um, you know, I keep thinking about that early intervention because you're told from day one, um, so here's what's going on with your family, here's what's going on with your daughter, um, and here's how important early intervention is. Um, The sooner we get on top of this, the sooner it can be turned around, and it's um, crucial. Uh, But... I have to be honest, the, the wait lists in Manitoba um, are, you know, a, a year, a year plus for services, for eating disorders. And, okay, you ladies might not believe this in Ontario, but uh, in Manitoba, our inpatient adult eating disorder unit consists of four beds for our entire province. Four beds in general psych. Yeah, so on, on your 18th birthday, um, like, and anyways, I, 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 will, I will stop there, but just the access to services is, um, is so mm-hmm. difficult. And for those families who can advocate and, and uh, do have loud voices, um, sometimes, you know, they may be able to get bumped or, or shuffled along, but I mean, it's just overwhelming and so disappointing for so many families when you realize that you cannot access services. 
yeah, something has to change there. Wow. Oh, well, we're going to wrap things up with Gabby. <laughs> Saving the best for last. Uh, you know, um, thank you, like, thank you all for joining. But Gabby, I think your story is so special in the fact that it, it well, it resonates, right? With the, not only young females, it, obviously now, like we just said, could be males, could be anybody from any gender, any age, any race, any ethnic background. But I guess, I hate to be cliche, maybe not words of wisdom, maybe that's the wrong uh, terminology, but your own words on your personal experience, what gave you the strength to move on? I mean, mm -hmm. Susan alluded that you went through a lot of different stepping stones along the way, but I'm sure there are some moments that gave you strength. Um, for sure, I think, well, just talking about we, what we've talked about, um, eating disorders go in hand with mental health. And so that also made the struggle really, really hard. And having depression makes you not feel like you're worthy of anything. And then having depression on top of an eating disorder you just absolutely feel worthless and like you don't deserve anything and so i think i was kind of in that mindset for so many years where i didn't feel like i was worthy of recovering i didn't feel that i was worthy of happiness um and so it took a lot of work on imagining what my life could be like what my life could look like could I have a job? Could I have friends again? Could I have a family? Could I move forward? And what would I need to do to get there? Because that was something that I think for a long time, I kind of had that disconnect. It was like, I wanted those things, but I never actively did anything to get there. And so it wasn't until I started putting things into place. And it was like, I wanted those things so badly. They no longer were things that were were like an ideal in my life but things that could actually be in my life um that really helped like for example work um for a long time I didn't think that I deserved to get a job and when once I kind of regained that it was like what can I do to not lose that again because it was things like work dance that I had lost um in my life and essentially also made me unhappy too because I lost them so having those things back in my life just kind of reminded me of why I needed to do it. And as I gained more things back in my life, it was kind of that realization clicked and it was like, this is how I want to live my life. Oh. Well, we thank you, Gabby, uh, for sharing that. Definitely that puts it all in a nutshell on, on what we were trying to, I guess, emphasize, talk about, get the information out, dispel some myths. Uh, thank you, Kim, from Waterstone Foundation. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Gabby, of course, again. Thank you, Charlotte. Enjoy the sun and Nuevo Vallarta. <laughs> and definitely thank you so much, Kirsten, for being here. And I know you can tell the story over and over again, but it, it never gets tired. It, it, you always show the passion, but also the journey, right, that got you where you are today. And like Gabe, Gabby said, one piece at a time, totally. gaining it back. 
and now you have a beautiful life. And same with Gabby. So thank you all for joining. And for more information... I was going to say thank yes. you for having us and putting this platform <laughs> forth, Tracy. Oh, this is so important. You know what? If we can get one call to All In or mm -hmm. one call to Waterstone or to Connected Eating or one follower on Gabby's Instagram, then Hugh has done their work. <laughs> but you can go to these websites, folks. You can go to waterstonefoundation.ca, connectedeating.com. You can go to at Daily Wellness with Gabby on Instagram. And you can also go to allinfamily.ca for any information and maybe some help. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Hugh at Home. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.